1: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: Dr. Don Garcia has a way of describing COVID's impact on Latino communities. It's not subtle. He calls it biologic genocide.
3: That is a loss of the gene pool of fertilization.
2: Some might take issue with your use of the word genocide that say, well, the pandemic is affecting everyone. It's neutral.
3: Well, it's not neutral to me because I'm in the eye of the fire.
2: Where Dr. Garcia is, more precisely, is Clinica Romero. It's a health center in Los Angeles, which is a city that's seen its Latino population ravaged over the course of the pandemic.
3: It would be neutral if every community was equally affected or everyone's homes would be are, are burning, but that's not the case. The homes or the families of the West Side are not being burned down the way they're being burned down in Boyle Heights, East Los Angeles, Pico Union, Westlake.
2: So you're saying allowing that to happen is a choice? Yes, yes. I read this statistic the other day that the mortality rate among Latinos increased by 48% during the pandemic in Los Angeles. I feel like you must know that statistic in your bones.
3: Well, I I know it in my bones because I'm, I'm a member of the community, and I not only know it in my bones, but in my blood.
2: Take a minute and consider this fact. Black, Native, and Latino Americans they're about twice as likely to die of COVID as white Americans. Even now, when so many people want to put this coronavirus in the rear view. Dr. Garcia works primarily with people who are struggling to make ends meet. A lot of essential workers. Sometimes they're undocumented. He says even when his patients developed COVID symptoms, they were hard
3: to reach. Many of them would not seek testing. If they did seek testing, they would not identify themselves necessarily as being positive. Sounds like there's a lot of fear. Of course there's fear because any type of identification to any governmental system that it could jeopardize at some point their immigration status or seeking citizenship or permanent residency in this country.
2: There's this one family whose story sticks with him, a young mom living with her parents. It was a few months into the pandemic when they tested positive positive.
3: So now you had an infectious situation where there was no sense of quarantine, of separate rooms. They shared the living room. They shared the kitchen or dining area if they even had that. Here, the infant was at risk. Uh, The mother became infected (laughs) and they had to live with the infection.
2: I noticed something as as I was listening to you talk about this woman's story. You did this funny thing. You did this little laugh when you explained her circumstances. And it caught my attention because I don't think you think this is funny.
3: No, you're correct. I don't think, it's not funny at all. It's very serious.
2: Today on the show, while much of America is throwing off its masks, Dr. Garcia is worried his patients are anything but done with COVID. I'm Mary Harris. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Dr. Don Garcia takes pains to remind people that his clinic is technically a federally qualified health center. These centers were set up during the Johnson administration's War on Poverty to serve impoverished neighborhoods. They got some federal money, but for the most part, they are working on a shoestring budget with some high-needs patients, and that makes it hard to give everyone the attention they need. But Dr. Garcia, he tries. I'm sure in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, you, like a lot of doctors, were just rushing to get care to your patients and your neighbors. But I'm wondering, when was the moment that you got angry?
3: I got angry immediately. Why? Well, because uh, they and I are one of the same. I came from the same background and same uh, healthcare system experience. My own family is no different than any of the patients I see, if it be grandparents, uncles, aunts, parents, or cousins. When I see a patient, I don't see them as a patient. I see them as my own family. What made you angry? What made me angry is that I was receiving healthcare services that were 180 degrees opposite than what my patients were receiving. <laughs> I mean, how could it be that I could go home and receive services and care, but I could not deliver that care to, to my own patients? How can I be there with my patients who were, had a higher morbidity mortality rate than myself, a higher positivity rate, yet they did not have the access to the services that were required for a pandemic as I did.
2: What kind of services? Like, are you talking about a COVID test, for instance? You could just get one?
3: Yeah, COVID testing, the vaccine, monoclonal antibody. All the services that were being initiated were not available to to the community of families and patients that I was serving. Yet I had access to that. So I had a difficulty coming to our federally qualified health center every day, and knowing that these services were not always available in the way that they were available to myself personally in my own healthcare system.
2: What was the difference? Just the fact that you had insurance? Because I think some people would say like, oh, well, you know, there were testing sites at, I don't know, Dodger Stadium or something. There was It was supposed to be open to everyone.
3: Just because you have access to Dodger Stadium does not mean that that solution For a community that has transportation and security, how are they going to get to a stadium five miles away? They have no car. They have no gasoline. They're limited in their finance. They have employment insecurity. They don't have opportunity to leave their work for a vaccine or a test or for illness. They have family care insecurities. Who's going to take care of the children? Who's going to take care of the elderly at home? Not only that, can they wait in line for four or five hours the way that you and I can? No, their, their, their life is, is not the life that you and I have, where for you and I is just an automatic reflex.
2: Yeah, you've described your clinic as being in the eye of the storm when it comes to COVID. Like last year in another interview, you talked about the COVID testing you did and how it differed from what L.A. County was finding, can you explain that a little bit the, the differences in your positivity rate?
3: Yeah, the difference is that LA County, the county rate was ranging from 3% to the highest maybe 13-15%, but here in our fairly qualified health center in uh, Boyle Heights, East Los Angeles and over in the Pico Union Westlake area, we were seeing a positivity rate consistently of 35 to 40%. Wow. For 13 months beginning in January of 2021 to February of, of this uh, 2022. That's how it was different. Yet the vaccines were not available. Yet the testing was not available as rarely as it was in those communities that had the lower infectivity rate. In other words, the formula was upside down.
2: What I like about your eye of the storm analogy is that it made me think about the pandemic a little differently as like a physical place rather than just an amorphous blob that maybe was affecting everyone. Like if I think about the pandemic as a hurricane rather than a virus, obviously someone like FEMA, they would send help right to the center of the
3: devastation.
2: What happened instead?
3: Yeah, you're you're very correct. I mean, if it was a forest fire that we witnessed here in Southern California wildfires, I mean, the eye of the catastrophic emergency immediately sees FEMA coming in, having major press conferences with the major political decision leaders with the major resources being brought in. Yet in this situation, we had the fire and you did not see a similar response that you would have seen with with a natural disaster. Why?
2: Yeah, I mean, you talked about how in the beginning when the vaccines were just becoming available, you got a shipment of just 100 vaccines and you have thousands of members. What happened when you asked for access to more and said our people need this?
3: There was a shortage of vaccines because what was happening is that the vaccines were being sent to the mega centers. They were being sent to the Dodger Stadiums. They were being sent to Cal State Universities. They were being sent to the fair complexes. That's where the priority was. And then whatever was left over available was then sent to the outlying federally qualified health centers or certified sites that were out in the neighborhood. I had an opportunity to testify at the White House um, Task Force on COVID-19. And I brought this concern. I said, why have you not brought in those of us who are down in the eye of the storm where the fire is existing, fairly qualified health centers who are part of the federal health care system. Why have you not brought us in as the experts to give alternative solutions and options to the communities of highest risk? What'd they say? There was no response. I've never had a response to this day.
2: I wonder if you see any evidence that people in positions of power have changed their approach as time's gone on. Like now that antivirals are available or monoclonal antibodies, is it easier for you as a clinician to access those treatments for your patients?
3: No, it's not because uh, we're still not updated with the recent uh, monoclonal antibodies uh, by providing support, financial support to acquire the necessary medical equipment technology. Uh, Number two, the medication we know is in a shortage because of the volume of need. I don't have access to that. We requested access uh, two weeks ago and we're still waiting on our supply to be delivered because there's a shortage of that medication. So it still becomes frustrating. There's no concern when we know there's gonna be a spike of this uh, viral infection in July and a larger spike in January of 2023. Are we going to revisit the same inadequacies, the same unpreparedness?
2: It's interesting that you say we already know we're going to have a spike in July and next winter.
3: Right. What do we need to do differently? What do we need to do better?
2: We'll be back after a quick break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify.
2: Where you thought maybe the way COVID is working, the way it's devastating everyone, might change things for you. Like a, a kind of rising tide raises all boats thing. Like I know your your clinic has the tagline of healthcare is a human right. Did you ever think maybe now everyone's gonna see how vital what we do is?
3: I, I had a moment in time when I approached the Medical Association, the local medical society, and they were very, very attentive and listening to the needs of our Fairly Qualified Health Center.
2: This was during COVID, the beginning days of COVID.
3: Yes, they're the ones who took my, my voice, my concern, my uh, advocacy uh, to those decision leaders because they had the access. They, they took me to the local County Department of Public Health director. They took me to the Region 9 administrator for the Department of Health and Human Services to to the state level.
2: You must have felt like you were getting things done.
3: Yes, we were. We were working collaboratively. And because of that, vaccines were delivered. FEMA came in and did a pop-up tent vaccine administration. But that was short-lived. It was only there for a moment. And then it was gone. (laughs) So to me, it it was disappointing because it was like, all right, we've given you your candy, be satisfied, and we don't want to hear uh, more from you or hear back from you. I mean, they they call on the academic experts, and I understand that. I mean, the academic experts bring the credentials of of, of their academic background and research, but we also need those who are actually the ones that are fighting the fire. (laughs) They haven't come down to the firefighters and said, hey, tell us, what does it feel to be there in the heat? to be there exhaustion, to be holding the hoses and seeing this fire decimating your community.
2: I want to fast forward to now. I know that you, you talk about how when you show up for work every morning, there's a line outside of people looking to get in, getting checked, seeing if they have their vaccinations. What's your positivity rate like
3: these days? Well, that's the situation. There's been a downtrend on accessing testing. There's been a downtrend on the number of vaccines that we're administering because of the health literacy. Our community has not had an increased rate of literacy to this pandemic or just to health care in general.
2: So you're saying that the positivity rate, even if it was going down, there aren't as many tests, so it's hard to know what to make of it.
3: Correct, because everyone believes that the virus doesn't exist. It's not around anymore. It is around, but there has not been an educational literacy campaign ongoing, just as you would do with the flu or the polio or measles or mumps.
2: The one message people are getting is they're seeing stuff like last week, the mask mandate was struck down on public transportation by a judge. And I'm sure you, just like me, saw those videos of people you know, putting their masks in the air and celebrating on planes. Um, but I wonder if you saw those videos a little differently, given that your patient population, it sounds like they're the people driving buses and subways and doing all of that essential work in Los Angeles.
3: Yeah, I, I, I see that very differently. I see it as destroying our community. I see them as what I call the yo-yo. Uh, theory and the yo yo in Spanish means I I I. Yeah, it's it's their freedom of speech or the or the rights of of civic liberties, but they're thinking about the I I I. They're not thinking about the us and the we. I still wear a mask as a role model to to display to demonstrate that there is still a pandemic that we still need to be aware of it. We still need to to follow protective measures. Now they may think I'm silly but i need to be a role model to my patients to my community wherever i go and say we still need to wear the mask if you're not wearing it i'm wearing it maybe it will it will tell a story for you
2: when i think about where things stand now with the pandemic i think about the way the public health community has dealt with other infectious diseases like i think about tuberculosis and maybe hiv And I wonder if you have a historical analogy you think about.
3: We do know that uh, the highest rates of gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, are in the lower socioeconomic communities. And that would include the Latino community, but other communities of color. But we also have a human papillomavirus, which is never talked about. And that can cause cancer. Cause cervical cancer. Those rates are even higher than the gonorrhea rate. The syphilis rate, um, you know, the chlamydial rate and the tuberculosis rate, yet we don't talk about it, yet it has an effect on the reproductive system of this community.
2: So you're saying being ignored is to be expected. Right. I share your concern that as infectious diseases grow and spread, become regular parts of life, they tend to move to marginalized communities and then some people seem to want to forget about them. But I think it's interesting to look at COVID and compare it to HIV, for instance, because when the gay community really banded together to demand a public health response to their people who were hurting, it did have an impact And I wonder if you think about that when you think about bringing your patients together and and having them do that kind of work, advocate for themselves. Do you feel like that's possible?
3: Uh, It's not possible in this country because the resources, the expertise, the allowance is not there like the gay community. What do you mean? Well, the gay community... Uh, had the resources, the literacy, the knowledge, the familiarity that it was killing off the gay community. And they would not stand for it. They had resources. They had financial resources. They had the political lobbying to go to elected uh, representatives. They made a demand. They were on the media every day. There was a story was being told. They were organizing. They had individuals who could do this every day. That's not allowed for marginalized communities, immigrant communities, undocumented communities, communities of color.
2: Hmm.
3: We, we, we never saw a call to action. There was never a resounding concern of those in the public, private, academic community who came down into East Los Angeles, Boyle Heights, into Pico Union and said, this is unacceptable.
2: Do you think there's still a chance to change this story?
3: Of course, there's an opportunity, but there's no call to action. There's no activation. There's no real movement to say, this is embarrassing. It's not going to happen to us again. Uh, We're going to go full force and bring in all the resources.
2: Dr. Don Garcia, I'm really, really grateful for you joining me and giving me a glimpse into what your clinic is up to.
3: Our community is always grateful for anyone who wants to listen to our story.
2: Dr. Don Garcia is the medical director at Clinica Romero in Los Angeles. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson. We're getting a little help these days from Sam Kim and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I am Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Meanwhile, stay tuned to this feed, What Next TBD, are Friday and Sunday shows. They're going to be right here tomorrow, so check them out. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here on Monday.
0: This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on.